This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Attorney General William Barr has come under intense criticism since he overruled frontline prosecutors last week to reduce the recommended prison time for Roger Stone. More than 2,000 former Justice Department officials signed an open letter asking that Barr step down over his decision in the Stone case. He's also faced criticism in recent days over other matters, for example, creating a special process for Trump's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, to submit information to the department about Ukraine-related matters, and appointing a senior prosecutor to examine cases being handled by the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., including the sentencing of Michael Flynn. Joining me is Neil Kinkoff, a professor at Georgia State University College of Law. He was formerly special assistant to the attorney general. We're about one year into the tenure of William Barr as attorney general. What strikes you most about the last year? Well, what's most striking to me is just how thoroughly Bill Barr has undermined and politicized the Justice Department. Um, I testified at his confirmation hearing and I testified in opposition because I thought his view of presidential power was so extreme as to be disqualifying. I think he's shown that that's true, but that's only the tip of the iceberg of reasons to be concerned about him and his tenure as attorney general. Um, I did not anticipate that he would turn the department into a vehicle for President Trump's political ambitions. Um, I worked in the Justice Department um, back in the 1990s, and what I observed was that the chief function of the political layer at the Justice Department, and principally the Attorney General, was to insulate the department from political pressure. And that was true not just in the 90s, it was true in the 80s, it was true in Republican administrations and Democratic administrations. Um, And it's what made the Justice Department a credible institution and an institution with real integrity in upholding our criminal justice system. But Bill Barr has inverted that. He is, instead of acting as an insulation against political pressure, he's turned into the conduit for political pressure, the way that the president can exert his political influence over every aspect of the Justice Department. And that's a threat that is far graver than anything I anticipated, even when I was testifying against him a year ago. President Trump seems to be testing his relationship with Barr, demanding he clean house at the Justice Department and target those involved in the Russia investigation. Do you see this as real or as something for, for Trump's base? Yeah, my concern is that that's what it is right, that this is a show for his base, that Bill Barr, when he says um, Trump's tweets make it difficult or impossible for him to do his job, that what Barr means is, I'm already doing your bidding. It makes it look bad when you start telling me what to do, because I already know what to do, and it's better if you just keep quiet about it. Um, And if that's the situation, then the Justice Department is far gone. If that's not the situation, which is my hope, is that President Trump thinks he needs to instruct Bill Barr because behind the scenes somehow Bill Barr is standing up to him, Um, well, that would be encouraging. The problem is I don't really see any evidence of that. We hear a lot about, well, there are career prosecutors there and they're still doing their job. 
Is this just in the D.C. office that we're that we're hearing these stories, or are there problems throughout the Justice Department, perhaps, and concerns that career prosecutors won't want to stay there anymore? So I, I have not heard anything that gives me pause about what's going on in other U.S. attorneys' offices, but I think that that may be coming. Right. So I think back to um, the administration of George W. Bush and the way that Karl Rove got involved with more local but still political prosecutions. So, for example, he saw to the firing of the U.S. attorney who brought charges against Republican Congressman Randy Duke Cunningham, if you remember that scandal, um, and other prosecutions against Republican figures. He also had fired um, U.S. attorneys who refused to bring unwarranted prosecutions against Democratic opponents. Um, and, you know, it was a real problem the way Karl Rove got involved. And and it's hard for me to imagine Donald Trump not at some point getting around to that or Bill Barr doing that for him, right? One year in, Bill Barr doesn't seem to have done that yet, but there are signs, right? So if you look at the way he's curbing the Southern District of New York's um, inquiry into uh, Lev Parnas and Rudy Giuliani, um, you know, that's another district besides the the District of Columbia district that could start moving into other districts throughout the country right so there's there's every reason to watch it although I I I don't know that it's happening yet I've been talking to Neil Kinkoff a professor at the Georgia State University College of Law about William Barr's first year as attorney general for President Donald Trump you know we always hear The Southern District of New York is the sovereign district, and it's almost independent from D.C., which doesn't make sense to me because the attorney general is also the attorney general over the Southern District. What is he doing there with Parnas and Fruman? So he has given um, the Eastern District of New York the ability to define the jurisdiction of the Southern District with respect to those investigations. So these two districts are are rivals with one another. It'd be a little bit like letting the head coach of the U, of Clemson do the recruiting for Alabama, right? And you know, they're they're rivals. <laughs> you know, so putting that kind of power over the Southern District into the Eastern District is, is itself a questionable thing. And the Eastern District, I can't imagine Bill Barr chose it at random. Not only are they going to be inclined to rein in the Southern District, but the U.S. Attorney in the Eastern District is much more closely aligned with Barr. So while the Southern District has this reputation for independence, Bill Barr is setting up mechanisms that will allow him to work around or overcome that independence. Looking back, does it seem to you as he as if he had a grand plan? Because if you look at what people often call his, you know, his sort of resume for the job of AG, he does have some very odd ideas about the president's power that even state that the framers 
didn't worry so much about presidential power. Right, and he's expressed that since that memo. He's expressed it in speeches, his notorious speech at the Federalist Society last fall being one of them. Yeah, he has this idea that, in fact, the presidency is modeled on on the monarchy. It is completely revisionist history. There is no actual support for that in the historical record. And if you go back and read documents from that era, it's impossible not to see just how committed everyone in the founding generation was to avoiding having another king. And so political opponents would charge the other with acting like a king. It was a commonplace in in the founding era. And so this idea that Barr has that the real concern of the Constitution was with a too-powerful legislature and that they meant to establish a sort of American imperial presidency as a counterbalance to that is, is simply contrary to everything we know about the founding era. But you're right to ask about whether he had some kind of grand plan when he came into office. I, I think he did. He sees himself as trying to restore the what he regards as the original vision of the presidency. He's completely wrong, and his original vision is a dangerously wrong one. And we see that over and over as he enables Trump in exceeding any kind of realistic view of the president's proper role in our constitutional system. Well, I also wonder about his view of the courts. And it seems to be a strange view for the Attorney General of the United States in that he seems to think that the courts shouldn't get involved in separation of powers issues. He said exactly that in his Federalist Society speech, and it's it's a completely bizarre view. I suppose he has in mind when he says that executive privilege fights between Congress and the president, and if the courts don't get involved, what he knows full well is that the president will win because Congress has no way of forcing the president to turn over papers. In the memo that you referred to, he suggested that Congress could impeach the president, but now we've seen that, in fact, Congress can't impeach the president for refusing to turn over documents. The House impeached him and the Senate refused to convict. So there's no other way of getting the president to act in a manner that's accountable and transparent. But it's also, I think, not in the long-run interest of the executive branch because there are a lot of situations where the president needs to go to court to vindicate what he views as his authority. Right. So a lot of the separation of powers cases that have gone to the court are cases where the president has been the one complaining about statutory limits on his power. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the clemency process as President Trump just granted clemency to a group of 11 people, including several very high profile political cases. First of all, did you see a pattern in his grant of clemency? Well, the pattern seemed to be that um, he approves of corruption. I, I just don't know any other way, any other way to look at it. Um, and so during the impeachment, we kept hearing his defenders say, you know, his actions in the Ukraine were all grounded on his deep concern about corruption. And I think he's just given the lie to that claim. Right? So the people that the prominent people in the group that, that were pardoned were each and every one of them 
deeply corrupt, right? Ed DeBartolo was paying off the governor of, of Louisiana in order to get a license to open a casino there. Um, Michael Milken engaged in securities fraud and insider trading and amassed great wealth, not based on his value added, not based on anything that is um, a legitimate market reason for amassing wealth, but rather based on schemes, corrupt schemes. Um, every one of those prominent people pardoned fall into that category, and Rod Blagojevich just takes the cake, right? And, and now Rod Blagojevich is out there saying he was a political prisoner. It, it's just preposterous. This guy was shaking down children's hospitals for extortion payments. And in Donald Trump's world, this is all okay. He's normalizing corruption, and it I suppose makes sense if you're Donald Trump to do that, since he is so deeply corrupt himself. Describe what the normal channel is for a pardon. Sure. The normal channel is to go through the Justice Department. There is, within the Justice Department, an Office of Pardon Attorney, and the pardon attorney reviews all applications for pardons and clemency and assesses them on the basis of sort of a uniform set of criteria and then forwards recommendations to the president. And the whole point of this process is to make it open so that it's available to anybody who wants to petition. It's also open and available to victims of crime and to prosecutors, right? Because it's not just the person seeking the pardon or clemency that's interested in the result of that application. The person who prosecuted that that person is also deeply interested. Um, the victims of their crimes are deeply interested and ought to be heard from. And the other, the other reason to run the process that way is that it shouldn't be that pardons are available only to those who are well-connected and can get the president's ear. Right? It ought to be something that is fairly available to everybody, regardless of whether or not they have wealth or power. Um, but in Donald Trump's world, what matters is whether you can get onto Fox News and plead your case in a way that he will personally hear it and then be moved or not. And so it's only those who have the kinds of connections that can get them onto Fox News or the kinds of connections that can get them in front of the president um, because he is not respecting the independent nonpartisan process that the Justice Department runs. Well, apparently, the Washington Post is reporting that there have been discussions within the White House about ways to revamp the clemency process and to diminish the role of the Justice Department. And apparently, Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, is central to these discussions. <laughs> Does that concern you? It concerns me on many levels. Uh, first of all, on the level of the independence of the Justice Department, right? This is another way for the White House to undermine the independent, nonpartisan administration of our justice system, right? It is a fundamental threat to the rule of law, um, and it is one in a long litany of threats that this administration has posed to the rule of law. With respect to pardons themselves, it undermines the integrity of the pardon process, 
right? It undermines the fairness of the pardon process, and so it's a terrible idea from, from that perspective. And then lastly, the people who would be running this process feel like Jared Kushner and Donald Trump himself are people who seem to have a real interest in undermining the integrity of the criminal justice system, right? It seems like Donald Trump's reason for that is that so many of his associates are themselves caught up in criminal investigations, right? His campaign managers, his close advisors, his political advisors, so many of them are under indictment, are under conviction, or are in prison. And so in order to sort of prop up the sense of his own integrity, he's undermining the integrity of the criminal justice system. And of course, Jared Kushner's father was also convicted of white-collar crime, and so he himself is apt to be an only too willing participant in this idea of undermining the integrity of the criminal justice system. Thanks, Neil. That's Neil Kinkoff, a professor at the Georgia State University College of Law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show weeknights at 10 p.m. right here on Bloomberg Radio.